0: Coming up on The Mark Divine Show.
1: Surrendering and kind of being at my knees made me completely teachable. And then I've got someone saying, here's a path. Here's a new identity, right? Because I see something in you you don't see in yourself. And I can help bring that out in you. And here's the actual path. So follow me. So now so I'm on my knees. I'm at a surrender point. But I'm given another option. And I think that was a critical
0: moment for me this is the mark divine show and i'm your host mark divine on this show i explore what it means to be fearless through the lens of the world's most inspirational compassionate courageous leaders my guests include notable folks from all walks of life martial arts grandmasters stoic philosophers psychedelic researchers and amazing individuals who've overcome serious hardship such as massive addictions to become awesome in themselves. And that is my guest today, RJ Singh. On his own journey, RJ's overcome chronic dysfunction, a life of violence, alcohol and meth addiction, youth detention, jails. Holy cow. But with the support of mentors and new frameworks, he embarked on a path of overcoming all of that. And now he runs a program called Ultra Habits and has a podcast. And we've had several conversations. RJ, great to see you again. Thanks for joining the Mark Divine Show. So good to see you again. Welcome back to the Mark Divine Show. And uh, I appreciate your persistence in, in finally getting this done. <laughs> yeah, man. I, uh, I'm i like a dog on a bone, man. I yes, just are. <laughs> will not quit. <laughs> well, we had that whole one where I forgot to record the darn thing. That's hilarious. No, no, that's right. We had, we had technical issues, right? With some weird clicking sound.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I finally got you on and it worked. So that was good. Good news.
0: Yeah. So, you know that I have a world record in burpees. No shit. We have the world record for six-person team, most burpees in 24 hours. I had no idea. That is bizarre. Most burpees in 24 hours, mixed team, 35,393, achieved by Mark Devine, Melanie Slicka, Greg Amison, Catherine Devine, and Jim Bro, and Elizabeth Fulop from Australia. Wow. September 11th, 2018. It was like a 9-11 thing, yeah? On 9-11, we filmed it. It took forever for Guinness to finally, you know, view because COVID then happened right after that. And all the film was stuck in their headquarters and they weren't going into the office. So it literally took until late last year before we finally got the actual certificate. You're going to go for a record. Is it going to be an individual? Yeah.
1: So I'm going to go for 11,000 in 24 hours. Awesome. You know what? I should get you to train me because, so the way I'm training is like I do for an ultra, but I don't know if it's appropriate. So what I'm trying to do is build time on, I guess, feet. You know, like anything, when you're running it sucks. And then I, I figured like I, I do burpees, it sucks. And and kind of getting used to just continuous burpees and and now I can do burpees for about an hour or two continuously. I would have to do eight for thirty seconds and then rest for thirty seconds. That's kind of how I would need to go for twenty four hours. Right. But I don't really know what's gonna happen an hour 10. I know my
0: glutes are probably
1: going to start to feel it. I know my chest might become a bit
0: weird. Just like endurance training, your body will adapt as long as you're training the right things. And with burpees, it's just burpees, right? Mm. So you're right in doing quantity, but strategy is really important. You can't just dive in and just do as many burpees as you can. Like you you know that for, so your strategy of eight on 30 second rest, do eight, do thirty. that, that might work there might be a different strategy to consider because you um, you might want to have a little bit of recovery each hour It's longer than that 30 seconds. You know, it's time to do a little uh, stretching, a little mobility, right? A little spinal health. I'll share that our strategy was everything, right? The, the former world record for our 24-hour period for six people was 14,000. We did 35,000. Yeah, you smashed it. It was all in the strategy. The structure was amazing. Anyway, so good to see you! Wow, how are things going? You look healthy. You look uh, things going well.
1: Yeah, yeah, you know it, it's good. It's um, it's seven a.m. here in in Melbourne, and uh, you know I've got little kids, and so I'm continuously having to kind of augment my routine to serve them, but also my wife, right, in terms of just being a husband and, and being an available dad and not getting caught up in my own yeah important selfishness <laughs> yes <laughs> and because uh, you know mark you know our wives they don't buy that shit right <laughs> they, no. Don't, no, they, they don't know who that. we really are they're like
0: no, whatever you know whatever that thing is you're putting out of the world yeah did you do the laundry <laughs> exactly that's awesome well yeah that's i call it life being lifey yeah you know ultimately we're doing these things really just to express ourselves in the world but doesn't mean we do them in spite of life happening or in addition to life happening it is life happening right and so if we're not taking care of all the other important things while we're doing this whatever this is for you it's ultra habits for me it's seal fit and my corporate training and podcasting life happens through that. And so ultimately, balance isn't like this tug of war between work and personal life. It's an interweaving of everything to find over time some sort of harmony, and a completely different way of looking at balance, more of a holistic approach.
1: I find, Mark, that I think you could relate. But like given my DNA, if I wanted to put my head down and do crazy things in terms of like trying to Break a Guinness Book of World Records every that stuff year. Is i easy. <laughs> I could. Yes. It's actually, easy. yeah. It's trying to include others in my life and having space mm-hmm. for others, and and um, you know, sacrifice for others, and being there. You know, with family.
0: That's the challenge, and and that's the part, right? I am getting inundated with people who want to be on my podcast who are just writing the latest book right they're putting out their latest book and they're a lot most of them are just very smart academics scholars consultants or all the above they've had a fairly predictable life path right decent childhood they got into the great schools they got their masters and they got their phds and next thing you know they're writing the book about happiness or they're writing the book about distractions and they're writing the book about whatever happening in the cultural norm edges and some of these are interesting conversations. I feel like they're pretty formulaic. I also feel like I'm a little bit being used as, you know, a shout box for them. And so it's like <laughs> I'm starting to resent some of that a little bit and thinking, well, gosh, I want to have conversations with real people. Yeah. Not that they're not real people, but, you know, maybe their PhD is from the school of hard knocks instead of Stanford, you know? Yeah. Maybe their life is their book. They're not trying to pitch a piece of paper, you know which is going to just bring them some more ego identity and you know another line on their resume. And you have a PhD from the School of Hard Knocks. I'm not saying you're not going to write a book called Ultra Habits and that would be a great book. I can't wait to read it. I'm just saying you are you are the book. Your life is an expression. So listeners don't know your background. How did you get your PhD in Hard Knocks? How do you translate that into becoming an elite Athlete and world record, soon to be world record holder, and you know, a father, and you know, balancing it all, and actually having a pretty damn cool life.
1: Yeah, so I, I think that to your point, some people come to performance and they're interested in performance because they've kind of always been optimized. That's not the case for me. Like, you were de optimized. <laughs> I was not only de optimized, Mark, but the way I was living was killing me, right? As an addict, hardcore meth addict with alcoholism as well. I think I'm a primary alcoholic. How many years ago was that? So I got caught up in the, in the meth wave in California. I grew up in the Bay Area. I was 17, and this was 1998. And I was heavily addicted to drugs and alcohol to the age of 26. So it wasn't decades, but my addiction and attachment to substances was profound. It was like at a spiritual level, like the moment I, I drank, there was a connection there and a light turned on that I had never switched on prior to that. I chased that. And then I met methamphetamine at age 17. I was an elite athlete. I was in the Olympic development program in soccer. I played in California, which is a very competitive state to play soccer because of, you know, we got a big Latin American community. It's a big state. You know, you're in California, so you know the gig. When I was out on the soccer field, I felt a sense of control and a sense of flow that all I wanted to do was play soccer. So, like, I would not even go to school and I would cut class and go to the soccer field on my own and just practice. But when I met alcohol and drugs, what happened was I realized I could achieve that feeling faster. It was a hack and it was much more profound as well, right? Like, you're not out there on a soccer field off your face, like in euphoria, right? So, I went through that struggle. Particularly around the age of seventeen, eighteen, of trying to do both, you know, I, I got involved in the the juvenile justice system, so I became a ward of the court. Good family, an immigrant family, immigrant story, but they didn't know how to cope. And uh, and as a last ditch effort, my senior year in high school, I went to Belgium. I got off house arrest, and uh, the judge knew I had an opportunity to go play soccer in Belgium. The thought was I'd stay out there my last year in high school, and. I was in a small town in Westerloo. I would play on the youth team and uh, my, my coach was on the adult team. And my ultimately, I guess the goal would be that I would try to get on the professional team. Within three months of being in Belgium, I was just drunk, you know, every day and every night and kind of in places that I didn't understand the language and didn't know where I was. And I came home in my senior year in high school. That's when I really got involved in drugs heavily. You know, that took me deeper into crime. I became a drug dealer. Lots of criminal charges, weapons charges, you know, possession for distribution. And, you know, I, I was a good kid, but when
0: I used, I just became this alter ego. I'm just kind of curious, like, it sounds torturous, but was it, like, episodic? Were you, like, clean for a few months and then get back into it, or how did it work?
1: Yeah, Mark, the the interesting thing was, whenever I would get clean, I would instantly want to start playing sport again, right? Like I'd move into who I am. And what would happen is I'd cling on and and grit it and try to stay clean. And maybe I'd, you know, be clean for two weeks or three weeks, and I'd go and have a beer. And I'd have one beer. And two hours later, I'm getting high on methamphetamine. And then the next morning, I'm selling meth again. So it was like that fast, right? Like I would, as soon as I'd relapse, the crime would come with it, because I, I knew I kind of, needed to to support myself and the only way that I wouldn't let the addiction take over wholesale was to control it through selling it. And so I would then go on another run for 2 years until I'd get arrested. So what would start with one beer, I mean really, if you were to rewind the tape say I'm, you know, I'm I'm in 2005 I ended up in in jail again for a distribution and possession of firearms. But if you had rewinded the tape on that, that run started a year and a half before where I might have been clean and went and had a beer at a bar and the next thing, full blown relapse. And then, you know, from there I'm selling drugs. And that's just how ferocious it was for me. I had a couple influential men in my life that were ex-U.S. Marines. One was my soccer coach who was a cop and he fought really hard. For me, but also was very hard on me was very happy to come and arrest me, but at the same time had a lot of time for me and he had convinced me to go into the u s marines so I was getting courted by the the u s Marines when I was seventeen, and I ended up going to jail and when I got out, I connected with the marines and they were very good to me, like they were very good at getting us young men who were a bit wayward, you know they would take us to events and um, there was the Oakland Naval Yard and, you know, they take us bowling. And I remember when I was about 18, I got out of a a short jail sentence and they came and picked me up and they took me to take the ASVAB, but I didn't get a high enough score on the ASVAB without having a high school diploma. And so that, you know, I missed that boat. And by the time I was probably ready to
0: do it again, I was already back, you know, in trouble. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I can see how the military is like a forced recovery, for, you know. If some if you catch the individual at the right place, because then you know you're at boot camp and you're just you're surrounded by discipline and positive energy. Well, and, you know, may not look positive to the outside, but you know, people who are motivating you to be your best self to bring out qualities that maybe you didn't see in yourself. The military training is really good for that. Although you know, it's not necessarily going to heal addiction per se. Yeah, it's a container that can get someone the right tools or habits, right, that you can then do the work yourself. When I was
1: uh 26, I ran, I kind of had enough of alcohol and didn't really know what to do. I was in Australia and I just jumped on a plane and went to the French Foreign Legion. Did you? Yeah, dude. I walked, rocked up at their, their fort in Paris and fucking, I went there and like, you know, it was madness. Like we're a bunch of kids that are just all over the joint and they're yelling at us in French. They refuse to speak, Mark, it was a crazy. What did you do? Just like go knock on the gate and say, hey, I wanna be in the Yeah, League? I had no money. I left Australia. I like didn't tell my parents what I was doing. And I was like, I'm gonna go to the French Foreign Legion because
0: like this is gonna be the answer. Let's talk about that siren call because not, not many people really realize that. Like the Foreign Legion yeah. has open arm policy, right? If you can get to the yeah. training, and you commit, right? They, there there's some significant benefits if you stick around for a long enough time, right?
1: Yeah. So you know what? In hindsight, if I was the person I was today, that would have been an interesting move. But I think the condition that I went there in, you know, like I was not fit. I could have probably hacked it because I was athletic enough. You had to do like six pull ups. I was a bit concerned about that. But like the running and all that, like was <laughs> wasn't an issue. But Yeah, you walk up there, you knock on the door, they come, they take your passport and you're literally kind of sequestered in a room. It it, it was a bit like jail. So like I wasn't too uncomfortable with the process, right? Like you're in a waiting room during the day, you're eating lots of croissants and you're not getting a lot of protein. And so the drill sergeants, You're getting yelled at continuously in French, and you've got no idea what they're saying. And because they're already French and a bit kind of arrogant, they're not going (laughs) to, and they know you're like American or whatever. They're like, they're not catering for you, right? So I was there, and I ended up bolting after a month and a half because what ends up happening is you go to a boot camp, and that's when you start to kind of for real become a legionnaire. But that was a really interesting experience being there because. You know, there's a lot of singing, a lot of marching. You're doing a lot of work. It's kind of free labor for them too, in many ways. And there's not a lot of there's not a lot of rules. I mean, you you would know this as a military man, like the French Foreign Legion, you go there, you're not really part of the traditional framework. So they kind of can use you how they want, from what I understand. Like they're fighting a lot of insurgencies and they're not doing traditional things, and that's where from what I understand, they send the French foreign legion where they don't really want to send the French military. <laughs> That's right. <Yeah. laughs>
0: like, you're expandable. Kind of like a like an NGO private military contractor, you know? It's the weirdest thing.
1: Yeah, yeah it is weird. Because, yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, you're effectively mercenaries. And, and there were a lot of people from, you know, African co- ex-colonies that were, you know, they didn't have much. You know that. They were poor. That was their only option. And then there were people that, coming from like random people coming from japan and china where you're like what did you do like because there were people there to escape crime right like in yeah
0: so that was an interesting well you made it a month and a half so good job with that <laughs> it would have been interesting to, to hear more about what that experience would have been like i know where did you find your break from the addictions what was what was the turning point
1: you know i left the the united states that came to australia the american immigration they they canceled my green card effectively right so My parents are U.S. citizens, my siblings are, but I had never bothered to become a U.S. citizen. Uh, Being born in Australia and kind of getting involved in crime and never having time to go become a U.S. citizen was to my detriment because after 9-11, American policy changed even for domestic criminals, right? It just became a lot more severe. So anyone they could boot out, they started to really look at, and rightfully so, I think. So I ended up coming back to Australia one of the things I said to my dad when I left, at that time, I had hacked a, a business degree in San Francisco. I'd used an ex-girlfriend's transcripts to get into a pretty prestigious university. <laughs> yep. that's a true story, Mark. Never graduated high school and used her transcripts. And, and I scanned it and submitted it with my name and they I was in. Unbelievable. Yeah, it was crazy. And I hacked this uh, degree, you know, and I, I knew I could put some sentences together and I could write and I thought well look I'll come to Australia and I'll start over and within 18 months I was I had 3 DUIs and here in Australia they're they're very serious with drunk driving so I was facing a prison sentence here and I just had this moment of clarity where I was standing in my living room and you know I'm 28 or something and I'm just I knew I was done and the obsession to drink was kind of immediately lifted. I think there was a crack in my armor and it was one of those what we call in recovery gift of desperation moments. I knew that I needed to get sober and I knew how to get sober, but something else was critical there. You know, first of all, I made the decision that if I was going to go to jail again here in Australia, I was going to go sober and I was going to do things on my terms. And in many ways that was the first decision i've ever made in the right direction so that was one critical component making the decision that i was done and i had enough and the other was i had met an, an entrepreneur in melbourne who is extremely high net worth now and he was very young at the time and he was building a business and i was working for him as a salesperson and i told him everything and he didn't fire me. Not only did he not fire me, he decided to to
0: take me under his wing. You found a mentor, and you had a, a higher self kind of slap. Correct. Yeah, and they happened around the same time. Exactly. So if I really break that
1: moment down, I think surrendering and kind of being at my knees made me completely teachable. And then I've got someone saying, "Here's a path. Here's a new identity." Right? Because I see something in you you don't see in yourself and I can help bring that out in you, and here's the actual path. So follow me. So now so I'm on my knees, I'm at a surrender point, but I'm given another option. And I think that was a critical moment for me.
0: Yeah, that's cool. I imagine, you know, this is just how the universe works. When you start allowing the positive aspects of consciousness, spirit, God, whatever, to reveal itself, or to, to flow through you, through us, then simultaneously, We have the aperture open wider and we see the support. The support was always there before, but our aperture was closed due to our addiction, due to our contracted state of being. And so we just couldn't perceive the support that was there for us all along or the information, the path, the way out. So it's so interesting that every time I talk to someone who's had kind of like this bottom of the barrel, like I'm on my knees moments and they make a shift Well, almost immediately the mentor shows up, right? Or the the positive path shows up. It's only because the aperture is suddenly expanded and they can now see what was already there.
1: Yeah, Mark, I think that the ability to see the connections in life and you know, I ebb and flow with that ability dependent on where my spirit is. And uh, you're one hundred percent right. I think keeping our levels of awareness open and being in tune and not on autopilot is important.
0: After 30 years in the trenches, forging leaders, one of the most important things that I've learned about bringing out the fullest potential in someone is that leaders thrive in supportive team environments. Being part of an elite team activates something deep inside where you can find a whole new level of drive and discipline that you never knew you had. I just opened a few spots in my highest level, most elite coaching program called Unbeatable Teams. The Unbeatable Team program is an elite team mastermind with a number of events throughout the year for high-performing leaders looking to unlock even higher levels of performance by surrounding themselves with a support system that will help them blast through personal barriers and limiting beliefs. The truth is that when you're part of an elite unit, you transcend your personal limitations and you'll do anything to avoid letting your team down. All of us are hardwired to get our best results when we're part of a winning team. I saw this as a Navy SEAL, and I've seen it over and over again training Navy SEALs and as an executive coach and in my own organization. The right team is the ultimate leverage to increase your personal potential. If you think you're a fit for the Unbeatable team, go to unbeatablemind.com, learn more, and click on Start Here to apply. I hope to see you there. And now back to the show. I think that, you know, to me, the positivist aspect of just why we practice, right? And then we'll, we'll call practice you can throw habits in there habit formation training for something any attempt to become better when you get more evolved what you actually realize is all of that is just ultimately an attempt to scrub away anything that's contracting us it's not a process of adding something that is missing from your life it's the process of scrubbing and cleaning all the mud off the filter so you know back to that aperture you know example like or metaphor so that you can perceive more yeah and as you perceive more it's not it's not you reaching out it's actually what's flowing through you what's flowing through the body mind is able to now it has more access the mind is working better so now it's it's basically lighting up more possibilities more opportunities you're seeing more connections and you're feeling that flow or that movement right that was you know heretofore stuck energetically i know it's a little bit of a metaphysical take on it but um Back to this idea of what, you know, who's the doer and what's really happening here. You know, energy is flowing through this body mind, AJ body mind, or this Mark body mind. And the only thing that I, known as, you know, when I identify him as Mark, the only thing I can do is block that source, block that energy. Right. So if I could just get the heck out of the way, this is why like surrendering, the idea of surrender and acceptance and forgiveness is so important because that's removing the crud. That gets yourself out of the way, opens up the aperture. Yeah. It's a little bit different perspective than like grasping for some achievement in personal growth or spiritual development or even healing, right? And the Western model is always this grasping I'm going to achieve this. I'm going to get that. I'm going to go for this. I'm going to go for that. And this model that I'm describing is more just, okay, that's fine. But what we're really trying to do is subtract, not add to our lives. Yeah. Subtract the negative. I'm 100% with you, Mark. I would add
1: in the recovery community, you see people, when they newly get sober, they're on this mission to accumulate information. They're on the spiritual marketplace, right? Because they have to be. You know, they become a bit annoying. They kind of pontificate. They're the ones that share all this stuff with everyone that'll listen. And they My kind ego of- goes
0: is now glomming on to the, being the one in recovery and who's making all this progress. And...
1: Yeah. But I look at those individuals- with love as well because i see what's happening now to the person that hasn't gone through that process they get a bit like ah but what ends up happening as a person stays sober longer and they're doing the work i think they move into a place where they've read all the books they've accumulated all the information and you kind of realize that all that information is saying the same thing and you're not necessarily using that information like for me when i read books now and i'm i'm interested in let's say I read your book. I'm reading that book or your book to not look at what information can I accumulate and stack upon, but how do I engage that information to then reduce the stuff that's getting in my way? It's a process of reduction, right? And that's exactly what you're saying. And, and I, I completely agree. I mean, because I guess what we subscribe to is that ultimately
0: within our heart and soul and being, we know the answers. That's right. It's all... You know, air quotes within, right? Mm. That's why meditation, contemplation, all the, you know, spiritual practice, even therapy, Western psychotherapy is all you're looking within. You're not looking out there to solve your problem. You're looking within, right? And so that idea of going within is not one of attainment, it's one of subtraction. And the yogic term is neti neti, looking at your life and saying it's not this, not that, not this, not that, not this, not that. Get rid of all that stuff. You know, when you look at addiction, you know, for instance, for you is. It was alcohol and alcohol then led to meth. So ultimately there was some trauma and or some genetic programming that allowed alcohol to be you know, a dominant force in your life. And so when you begin to do the netty netty, you're like, okay, alcohol is not good for me, but there's this massive attraction to it. That's what we call the addiction, right? And so you got to trace that back to its source by saying, not this, not that, and keep on removing things that trigger the alcohol until you get to the... That emotional kind of um, zero point. That it could be f- psychophysical. It's biological. It's you know energetic, right? And so you kind of pierce it from those different perspectives and bring it to light, so to speak, by subtracting everything down to that zero point. And then once you get there, generally the the addiction can go away. I'm not saying this is easy work. It takes a lot of it takes a lot of courage. Yeah, and reprogramming, man. But the point is, it's an inward journey. It's not outward searching for something to replace it, and this is why, like with habit forming, which is I know your your kind of thing. A lot of people say, "Yeah, well, one way to you know to get rid of a bad habit is to replace it with something good." And I said, "Well, that's that gets you about halfway there." Yeah, (laughs) you know. Yeah. But you also have to then simultaneously go within and and ferret out through that netty netty process of why the energy was stuck in that bad habit to begin with. Well, what I find, and you and I have had this
1: conversation before, when I got sober, I started running crazy amounts
0: of distance, right? Which is another addiction. Correct. So that's what I just talked about. You just did the replacement theory. I did. And that's good. It's it's a better habit to go out and run 20 miles a day than it is to drink 20 bottles (laughs) a day. For sure. (laughs) To your point, this is where you went.
1: And I mean, I'm lucky that I'm in 12 step, right? Because I think if you have a good sponsor, they'll recognize that that you're just effectively switching one for the other and some people never move beyond that they'll just replace alcohol and drugs with something that is less harmful or something that is better for them so i guess what i'm trying to say is i always tell my sponsees that at some point in your recovery you're going to have to be able to sit in a room by yourself without
0: going insane that's right yeah so th- th- let me just let me try to analyze what you're saying a little bit I saw this in CrossFit. You know, I had a CrossFit gym for 10 years. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. That beautiful program is a magnet for addicts, Mm. right? People just transferring one addiction to another, right? Usually it's like eating or or alcohol or sex or whatever. And then they, they transfer that addiction to CrossFit. And so that's great. They get super healthy, right? Their bodies look amazing. And they're just as messed up as they were before. They're just physiologically a little healthier, and they're still just dropping all sorts of hand grenades of dysfunction around every relationship they have. And because wherever you go, there you are. It doesn't matter if you're, yeah. you know, it, it might help if your body's a little healthier. And I say that only because if your body's healthier, then you're going to be able to do the inner work better because your brain's going to be more functional and, you know, you'll be able to meditate better. But if you haven't developed the self-awareness that it's still an addictive pattern and you're hiding from something, like you said, you're not able to sit in a room without going crazy alone, then you're always running from that. You know, I interview a ton of people who are always trying to accomplish the next latest and greatest thing. And I ask you like, what are you running from? Like, why, you know, why at 72 do you need to be known as the oldest guy, you know, in the world to do this latest crazy feat? Like, is it really, is your ego really still trying to, still needs that external validation. You just don't have the sense that you're good enough yet or worthy. And so find that trauma. Find that trauma trigger and recognize your worthiness. And if you still want to do those things, great, but don't do it because you're running from yourself. For me, when I started ultra running, I had already been a year sober.
1: And I think I'm grateful for that because, funnily enough, when I got sober in 2010, I started hiking. And then because I like to move, I started running with the, the gear. But I didn't know there was actually a sport at that time you know, trail running. I didn't know. And I'm glad I didn't know. Because I think if I would have known then, I would have just gone off. Because that would have been a very easy way for me to just kind of alleviate the madness that was between my ears. And I, I did the work. And then I came back to running later after I did an MBA. And it was a, a new crucible. It was a very intentional Thing because i was kind of looking so i have crucibles in my life like these times where I, I just kind of that's what the burpee challenge is it's it's a new crucible for me where i just know i need existential pressure
0: yeah that's why we have Kokoro. it's a great way to really get unstuck from things that are you know you're aware of right you're not hiding from them, you're aware of them but in that intensity of that challenge you can break through and accelerate your growth so deliberately designing a Crucible challenge or, or participating in one with awareness that is going to surface a lot of patterns and a lot of things that you resist and you have to burn through that resistance. It's a very useful training tool.
1: Let me ask you something, Mark. So I find that when I get into a place where my demons come up, you know, every few years things come up for me. And I find that, for instance, um, I had gone through some challenges. A couple months ago, and I really started to go back to a meditative practice. But I found that being still at times actually inflamed what was going on for me, and I needed to move. What's your view on that? Like, is there a time where meditation can create more mental chatter that kind of
0: digs you more in the hole? Like, okay, so here's my perspective on this the chatter's there. When you're constantly in movement, you just don't notice it. There's something else at the forefront of your consciousness. Your, your mind operates at main levels. The key is to bring those levels into your awareness and then to begin to do a couple of different things. One is to distance yourself from all that busyness, all that stuff, right? And this is the process of witnessing, right? So beginning, you know, first starts at mind level where you literally are like partitioning your mind and you're literally setting up shop and you're beginning to distance yourself, disengage from being grabbed by or being drawn into the thoughts. And so the example there is like, you're having this anger moment and you're just like, ah, I'm so angry versus that anger still comes up, but you're watching it now from a distance saying, wow, look at that, there's anger arising and just letting it pass and not getting you know completely drawn up. So first is at the mind level, then second, it it's just comes, it just naturally, the aperture opens and it's it's pure awareness. It is the stillness that's watching AJ, right? Watching everything that's happening. So back to your question, the thoughts are always there. When people first sit down and meditate, all of a sudden, all the externalities are gone. And boy, what was just the background hum that they barely noticed is now like a you 100-piece know, symphony. Mm. It's like this cacophony in their minds and, and literally is maddening. And it's like, oh my God, I can't stand this, right? And so then they think, okay, well, fine. That's fine. Go do something, right? So one of the precursors to or, or tools to really begin to get a, a hold of that mind current that's all over the place is concentration. And, and endurance training is a form of concentration, which is why it's so valuable. Or just a mantra or box breathing for us. You know, We just do box breathing for arousal control and concentration, attention control. Those three things. Just focus on that pattern. Inhale five, hold five, exhale five, hold five. And so then what that does is it takes your dominant mind stream and it narrowly focuses on that one thing. And when it does that, then all the other stuff starts to eventually slowly settle down a little bit and you can find that kind of that stillness again. Then when you take your foot off the gas pedal, that stuff will arise. But because you've had that concentration, gotten now the mental stability and the power of your mind, then you can create that that shift with your mind where you're watching it instead of just caught up in it. So concentration is really important to practice as a prerequisite. That's like meditation boot camp is concentration camp. And then you go into meditation as kind of becoming mindful aware of the content and you can work with the content of your mind.
1: That's brilliant. I, I, my relationship with meditation, I was a solid meditator and then I had kids and then I found it was the first thing that kind of went, because I was quite structured and around my practice. And then when I wasn't able to meet my practice, I just felt like I let myself down. And 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 then over time, it became inconsistent. And then I completely stopped. And I've reintroduced it, but trying to find the right practice at the right... So I wake up in the morning with a lot of negativity in my mind and a lot of physical energy that I feel requires me to move. And so when I try to sit still in the morning, I don't feel that is the the best time to meditate. But then when I try to do it at the end of the day, after the work and the kids, I'm a bit shattered. And I, I oscillate between box breathing or concentration meditation to more of a another style of meditation where I'm just more spacious and I'm just kind of letting things arise. And Being a habit oriented person, it's one of the things in my program where I still haven't found the right framework, if that
0: makes sense. Think of it just as sequencing, like in a workout or or a training program. It's just sequencing. It's absolutely right that if you have a lot of energies in your physical energy and physiological energy, we need to move that energy. One way to move it is with the breath, another is through movement, exercise. So if you're like that, then the movement comes before the meditation. So you're right there. But you're also right in saying that wow. By the end of the day, your your mind and your willpower and you know you're, you're just the mental strength has been diminished, and so it's going to be more difficult, right? Without training, you know, to do your meditation. So think about it this way: think about your physical training and your breath work and your meditation, all as the same training thing. And so you wake up. In, first of all, the, your practice starts the moment you open your eyes, or the moment your your inner eyes open, and you the world wakes up to you, and you're like, "Oh yeah, here's another day. What a grateful opportunity, huge opportunity I have today to continue my evolutionary journey." Because it didn't have to be this way. Your practice starts immediately with intercepting the negative thought patterns and overriding it with a mantra and with gratitude. So your practice actually, and and you could call that a meditation. It's more of a contemplation practice. Okay, so then whatever else you do prep but then you're going to go do your physical movement to move that energy and that's concentration training especially for an endurance athlete and it's breath control training because you're controlling your breathing so you're combining these t- three elements into one then when you're done with the movement you know don't just hop in the shower and go about your day you take an extra 20 minutes now to take use the breath practice box breathing to turn inward so now you're going from the hard physical movement not to just moving the breath which is going to move the mind And then you turn around where you take your attention from outward focus to inward focus. And so you do that for five or seven minutes or maybe 10. And then just let go of all efforting and go into that spacious awareness space. And you'll have already burned off all the energy of agitation. You've done the concentration. You've done the turning around, turning inward, right? You're turning attention inward. And now your mind is much more prepped for that spacious awareness. That's actually a good plan because I
1: will always exercise. And you're right, like the best time for me and many people like me, and I mean, Mark, you would know this better than anyone. Like I believe this to be true, that yoga, the physical yoga was really done as preparation for meditation, right?
0: (laughs) It wasn't this whole thing like what it is today. The way there was sequence was foundational ethical principles first, like get your life in order. Eat well, sleep well, don't overdo it with, you know, anything, kind of middle path. And then we layer in the exercise, the asana, and that's to make the body healthy and the brain healthy and to give you the discipline. And then we work with the breath. And then after the breath, we work with the uh, tuning out our sensory perceptions to bring our awareness from the outer world into the inner space. And then we get into concentration training. And only after all that, do you actually do air quotes meditation in kind of the yogic sense. So, you got this world record thing coming up. What else is going on in your life? Yeah, so um world record attempt
1: starting a new business. So, ultra habits is part of a bigger plan. So here in australia i I work with companies to help them grow in terms of their revenues, and I also focus on sales training within companies incorporating habits into that. so sales habits, and we also look at the kind of their inner world. so we're. Starting a a new business called Ultra Growth Ventures, which is going to be focusing on helping businesses grow, but the individuals within those businesses grow as well. That's happening January 1, 2024. But this uh, world record attempt is really, you know, you made a, a great point earlier. I am in a place now where I just knew that I needed a new crucible, something that would really stretch me. And I was kind of thinking about what that was, and you know, had the benefit of listening to your buddy Goggins, and I was like, "Yeah, this is—it was the right time for me to listen to Goggins." He's—he's he's not always for me, but there's a time and place for Goggins, so sure. I had to listen to him, and it, things became a bit clear. This event, we're going to be trying to raise a million dollars for mental health awesome. here in in Australia, and so that's going to be happening Jan one two thousand and twenty four. But yeah, just really focusing on you know the family, wife you know, having conversations like I do with you and, uh, yeah, just optimizing. It's really what
0: it's about for me. That's awesome. I can't wait to hear about that, um, about all of that, especially the world record attempt. And we'll uh, share share our little secrets. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> it's such a,
1: I mean, I mean, you know, we talk about the connections and like, I honestly didn't know you did that. Like, what's the, the chances of that, right? Like, cause I've been thinking, okay, well, how am I going to go about this? Who's done this before?
0: I mean, that's just weird, right? Like, there you go. And there's someone in our tribe, the Unveiled Mind Fit tribe, who's that same year got the world record for 12 hours. Crazy. And he did, like, I, I can't remember the number, but it's a pretty insane number for 12 hours. Anyways, that's awesome. Uh, and where, where are folks, um, you know, if someone's like really inspired to learn more about and follow your journey, where do you like to send them? Is it social media? Yeah, like- uh, there's a website. So it's
1: www.ultrahabits.co.
0: It's www.ultrahabits.co. Co. Awesome. We'll put that in the show notes. RJ, it's been a, a real pleasure chatting with you again, and I love you know just mixing up, trying to figure out how to optimize and how to overcome trauma, and like it's really valuable stuff. So like, like you said, right now, mental health is a big problem worldwide. There's a lot of negativity and violence in the world, and people are suffering from that. And so, this is really these conversations are really important. So I appreciate you. Yeah, this is the anecdote. That's right. All right, brother. Thanks, Mark. Be well. You too, mate. hoo I love conversation with RJ Singh. That was just awesome. And I love to be able to share my ideas on you know process for sequencing uh, meditation into your physical training. Great stuff there. Our show notes are up at markdivine.com as well as the video on the YouTube channel. So share it with your friends if you enjoy it. You can reach out to me um, on Twitter at markdivine or on Instagram and Facebook at Real Mark or on my LinkedIn profile. Divine Inspiration is a new newsletter that comes out every Tuesday where I disseminate top of mind, blog habits, podcast notes, interesting things that come across my desk that I think you would find value in. Go to markdivine.com to subscribe and share it with your friends as well. Thanks so much for my terrific team, Jason Sanderson, Catherine Divine, and Jeff Haskell, who helped produce the show and the newsletter and bring guests like AJ to you every week. Ratings and reviews are very helpful. So if you haven't done so, please consider rating and reviewing uh, wherever you listen to this show. It helps other people find it and uh, keeps us in business here. Thanks so much for being part of the change you want to see in the world. Over at sealfit.com, we are helping people build strong bodies, strong minds, and do it with strong teams. So if you want to train like a Navy SEAL or get trained by a Navy SEAL or just level up your game with some of the concepts and principles of these incredible warriors, then go to sealfit.com and check it out. Until next time, this is your host, Mark Devine.
1: ya.